Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hi everyone, good evening. I'm Jack Murphy here with David Park. This is episode 167 of The Team House. Welcome to our new set. Hope you guys like this. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us tonight and joining our guest, Tim Weiner. He is a national security journalist with extensive experience reporting around the world, certain hot spots like Afghanistan during the Mujahideen times. Uh, where else, Tim? Liberia, Philippines. You know, all the garbage Lib- Libya. Right. Jack. I mean, uh, you know, the Liberian Civil War, Sudan during the war, uh, Haiti, Cuba. Uh, you know, everywhere American interests extend that I could get to, I got to. And Tim is also the author of Legacy of Ashes, a history of the Central Intelligence Agency. He's also the author of Enemies, a history of the FBI. And uh, The Glory and Folly is your latest book. The Folly and the Glory. The Folly and the Glory, about the history of political warfare between Russia and the United States. Which goes on every day. Every hour. And you're currently working on, we'll get to this a little later, a sequel to Legacy of Ashes. Uh, your book, your first one goes more or less up to, what, 2003, 2006 Okay. Yeah. And you, the sequel is going to cover the War on Terror years. The 21st of- century. hmm hmm So I really wanted to jump right into talking first about you and sort of your backstory and what was... Uh, the pathway that you took into national security journalism. How did you end up there? And it, and if you could share some sage stories about Brooklyn. You once told me that you paid one hundred and fifty dollars rent, which I refuse to believe. That sounds like <laughs> fake news to me. Yeah, I'm a Brooklyn guy, <laughs> and here we are in in Greenpoint. That's how we say it in Brooklyn, Greenpoint, Greenpoint. Uh. <clears throat> So, uh, 
I was born in 1956. My parents uh, are uh, war refugees. My father was born in Vienna. My mother was born in the Jewish ghetto of Nuremberg, uh, Germany, uh, Fürth. She was born there uh, 11 months after Henry Kissinger was born. And I I could always get Kissinger on the phone. I would call his uh, secretary and say, Please remind Dr. Kissinger that his father taught my uncle in the gymnasium in high school in Nuremberg. And then he'd get online and say, Yeah, Mr. Viner, what do you want now? That's a good source to have. Um, my favorite Kissinger aphorism is, yes, it has the unpleasant odor of truth. uh but i digress um so yeah my uh, i'm a first generation american uh my parents got out of war-torn europe uh my mother uh, and her mother uh got out through casablanca uh they left on the second to last boat that left casablanca in uh 1942 the reason that these were the last boats is that Jagger Hoover told President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, no more boats with German refugees on it. They will be salted with not. So they landed in Havana. There were two years in Havana. Uh, they eventually got out, and uh, my mother became a history professor. Uh, my father, born in Vienna, uh, uh, got out through London, went to Harvard. My mother got into a program uh, for refugee uh, women at Smith. Uh, so they became Ivy League graduates. Uh, and uh, my father uh, was a um, professor of medicine. My mother was a professor of history. And I was a history major in school, but I was also a Watergate baby. Uh, Born in 56, Watergate happened when I was 17, 18 years old. And one of the chief consequences of the Watergate disaster for the government of the United States was the revelation that the CIA had been spying on Americans in violation of its charter, which says the CIA has no police powers in the United States. This revelation, which was uh, uh, the work of a, a reporter from the New York Times named Seymour Hirsch, 1974 1974 December 1974 led to the church committee hearings uh, which was uh, uh, the Senate led by Senator Frank Church of Idaho <clears throat> began to look into what the fuck the CIA had been up to um, <laughs> since its creation in 1947. A multitude of sins. 
were revealed, everyone accepted that the CIA had been created in 1947 for two reasons. The first reason was to prevent the next Pearl Harbor. And the coordination of intelligence overall, right? The coordination of intelligence, Jack. Um, in principle, yeah. Um, well, before you get too far, yeah. we, I do have extensive notes here on your book that we will get into the history of the Central Intelligence Okay, so that's Agency. the backstory. Right. When I was a teenager, I got interested in the CIA. And what is this organization? How does it fit into the government of the United States? And what does it really do? Because we've been fed so much, if I may use a technical term, You may. Bullshit about what the CIA is, what it does. All we know about the CIA is, you know, movies and television. And almost none of it is true. Proceed. Or positive. I mean, not, and I'm not, like, generally, the CIA. Jack Ryan is positive. There you go. That's true. Okay, he's a hero. That's true. James Bond, who you know, the American interpretation of James Bond is that, you know, the, the, the intelligence officer dons his trench coat, gets on a plane, flies into a foreign capital, overthrows the government, makes love to a beautiful woman after consuming several martinis. Sure. And leaves on the next plane. That was that was a job I was looking for. Where do I for. fill I out never the found application it. for that? <laughs> okay, so so proceed. so how did you find your way into journalism? I mean, this was your interest in in sort of your government and some government malfeasance, perhaps after Watergate. Well, yeah. Well, so as a Watergate baby, um, and uh, 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 a history major at Columbia University, also your alma mater, um, in the seventies. Um, my mom's a history professor and he, she sort of wanted me, you know, to follow her footsteps. Uh, I didn't have any languages. I couldn't get a PhD. Um, but I like to write. And Watergate, um, convinced me that if you got a job as a newspaper reporter, you could get paid to kick the government in the ass. <laughs> What could be better? And that led you into, so 74, you were a teenager. By the time you, what was your first job in journalism? Uh, in 79, uh, I became a reporter. I had three jobs. It was sort of like the gig economy is today. It's like you can't just have one job. You need a couple. So uh, here in New York, um, I covered the courts in Foley Square in Manhattan, the federal court, um, and uh, the state Supreme Court, and I covered white-collar crime. I also did features uh, for a now long-defunct alternative weekly, um, the Soho News, and... Um, I filled in for the Associated Press reporter in the federal courthouse who was drunk after lunch. 
um, the AP, you know, uh, asked me <laughs> for an assist <laughs> right. if I could. I was 23 years old. Right. I would do anything, you know, to get a byline. Uh, and said, you know, if Paul, just let us know if if Paul is not filing <laughs> today. So that was great. And then I went off to the, I couldn't get a job. I wanted a job at a daily newspaper, you know. So the New York Times is not hiring a 24-year-old kid, uh, and neither were the tabs, the 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 Daily News and, and New York Post. So here was here was the key. In my desk at uh, State Supreme Court, uh, I jimmied open this metal desk in the press room, and there was a ream of stationery from the long-defunct uh, New York Journal Tribune, a Hearst newspaper, with a screaming eagle for its logo, thick rag bond. So I, I typed up, application letters to a bunch of newspapers on this uh, uh, striking uh, letterhead, I got a, uh, a quick response from the Kansas City Times, which was the morning newspaper in Kansas City, Missouri. And I went out there, um, and the day I went out uh, was... Uh, January 20th, 1981, the day that the American hostages in Iran were freed after 440 days of captivity and the day that Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as the president of the United States. So I fly in there with my you know, New York outfit uh, and I walk into the uh, newsroom uh, and the guy I'm, I'm I'm supposed to meet is Paul Haskins. Paul Haskins was uh, you wouldn't have called him this to his face, but he he was a punk. He was a, a East L.A. Pachuco. Um, uh, he was six foot five, had a big old mustache, and he wore cowboy boots. He was about six seven his boots so I walk in say hello Paul Haskins he says um, and this is a just a little vignette from the golden age of newspapers <laughs> he says he stands up and says come on let's go get drunk <laughs> so, yes sir so um, we went to the restaurant bar that was across the street from every newspaper in the United States that served chili and whiskey and beer. And around, around about one o'clock, which was closing time, I realized this is a macho test. I came in at nine the next morning. Oh yeah, he stole, he stood up at the end of the macho test. A little more unsteadily than he had stood up at five o'clock and said, Come on in tomorrow about nine and write some stories. <laughs> and I said, Yes, sir. So 
and I went to bed at the Mulebach Hotel, got up at nine, uh, came in, at and Paul was there at his desk, and with his head in his hands. And he looked up at me, and at first he didn't actually recognize who, <laughs> who I was. And then, then he came into focus, and he said, there's no peanut butter. And I said, what? <laughs> he said, there's no peanut butter in Kansas City. Find out why. <laughs> um, so it was not a complicated story. You know, there had been a bad peanut harvest. The commodity credit corporation in Atlanta, you, know, you could call them up. They told me, yeah, it was a bad peanut harvest, you know. So I filed a story on triplicate carbon, and I was hired. Uh, I did 14 months at the Kansas City uh, Times, and then um, the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, was the hottest newspaper in the country. So I'm still 24, 25 years old now. The Philadelphia Inquirer is where I made my bones. So, short background. Um, the Philadelphia Inquirer had been owned uh, up until 1972 by a gentleman named Walter Annenberg. There are now Annenberg schools of journalism you know, in, in Los Angeles, so forth. He was a thug, very rich thug. His father, Moses Annenberg, Moish, um, owned the racing form, a Bible of horse racing in the United States. And he was also the biggest bookie in the United States. And he was convicted of tax evasion and died in federal prison. So uh, Walter Annenberg, oh, and he bequeathed to his son the TV Guide, a long defunct, but incredibly important. Oh, at that time. At that time, like I remember growing up, like sure. you got it every week. Sure. Um, so uh, Walter wanted to be a gentleman. Philadelphia society did not recognize him as such. He was a Jew. His father was a crooked bookie. And he was a jerk. <laughs> um, so in 1972, in consideration of a totally illegal $250,000 cash contribution to the committee to reelect the president of the United States, Richard M. Nixon. Walter Annenberg was appointed ambassador to the Court of St. James's in London. Nice. <laughs> he sold the paper. He sold the paper to a good guy named John Knight. And John Knight called up Gene Roberts, who was the national editor of the New York Times, and said, Gene, how'd you like to run the worst newspaper in America. And Gene, who's a good old boy from North Carolina, said, uh, okay. Hey, hey, yeah. All right. <laughs> I will fast forward 
10 years later, the Philadelphia Inquirer was pound for pound the best newspaper in America. Gene, or tomorrow, we're going to have a 90th birthday party for Gene. And everybody oh, wow. who ever worked for the Inquirer is going to be there. What What would you say the, the changes that he made that took a bad newspaper to the best? Like, Not a bad newspaper. The worst, the worst, most corrupt, big city newspaper in America. From like, as as an editor, what did he do? What were his policies? How can one person affect such change in a paper like that? Gene was the national editor of the New York Times. He had been the Saigon bureau chief before that and the lead reporter for the Times on the Civil Rights Movement uh, in the South in the early mid-60s. Um, he fired all the corrupt assholes and the deadwood. He hired everybody at the New York Times who hated the executive editor of the New York Times at the Times, Abe Rosenthal. Um, and he attracted all the 20-something reporters in the United States who were hungry, who wanted to kick ass and take names. Right. He didn't have a foreign desk. There was no budget for that. But he made one. Um, the corporate... Owners uh, didn't didn't have a budget for the Philadelphia Inquirer to have a foreign desk. So the first foreign um, uh, correspondent for the New York Times, they, Gene and his um, uh, right-hand men, created a cost center for a parking garage uh, for the paper, and they funded the foreign desk out of that. Okay, real quick. When did you get your first job in in like as a journalist? Seventy nine. And how old were you? Twenty three. Okay, because this is leading up to while you're at the Inquirer. Nine years later, you're a young buck. Still, nine, but nine, nine, yeah, not even nine years later. So, I was a white collar crime reporter. There was a lot of it in Philadelphia. I was a very busy kid. Uh, in uh, the first week of de December 1985, uh, Gene wanders over to my desk. I'm finding this incredibly complicated story about the corruption of the Philadelphia Police Department. And, and uh, he, he walks over to my desk and Gene's a good old boy from North Carolina, as I mentioned. He says, hey, hey. And I'm like, hey, Gene, how you doing? <laughs> he says, uh, you got a passport? The sweetest words <laughs> <laughs> that a young reporter could ever hear. And I said, yeah. Gene, I do. He said, need you to go to the Philippines. 
the dictator of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, whose son, this is now, let me do the math, 38 years later, is now the ruler of the Philippines. The dictator of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, mm -hmm. had run the Philippines with an iron hand from 1965 until 1985. He was the American bulwark against communism in Asia. Um, American bases in the Philippines, Clark and Subic, mm -hmm. Clark and Subic, the American uh, Naval and Air Force bases, were the launching pads for uh, mil military strikes uh, against uh, North Vietnam. Uh, Marcos, in addition to being the American bulwark against communism in Asia, uh, was a vicious dictator who had stolen, at that point, Five billion dollars raped the economy of the Philippines, tortured and killed his enemies, but he was our dude. He may be a bad dude, but he's our but dude. But he's our dude, right. So anyway, Marcos goes on a television program, program called Nightline. Remember Nightline? Yep. Ted Koppel. Uh, and Ted Koppel asked, asked him, so, uh, Mr. President, are you ever going to, like, hold an election or anything? It's been 20 years. And he says, yes. Yes, I will hold an election. I will be holding a snap election in six weeks. And everybody goes, what? <laughs> you are? The next day, the Philadelphia Inquirer's lone foreign correspondent in Asia quits to join the LA Times. Then the next day, Gene wanders over and says, hey, hey, you know, got a passport. So, 29 years old, I go over to the Philippines and I witness the beginning of the end of the Cold War. What happened? Marcos stole the election. Everybody knew that he had stolen the election, and the people rose up in the millions. It was the first international event that CNN ever covered. Oh, wow. Like first live on television. That's event. right. Wall to wall. And the people of the Philippines rose up. It was a four-day revolution. There were two million people in the streets of Manila. And on the fourth day, Ronald Reagan loved Ferdinand Marcos and his crooked wife, Imelda. With her 3,000 pairs of shoes. Yeah, yeah, you remember that? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Ronald Reagan and Nancy 
Reagan and Ferdinand Marcos and Imelda Marcos had danced in the White House together. He was our dude. He, he, he was the man who was the forward-facing uh, representative of American power against communism in Asia. And on the fourth day of the revolution, and I was there, and that was the first time I got shot at in my entire life, not the last, because there was an insurrection at the palace, at Malakanyang Palace. And the people were, were there, and I was there as a reporter, and Marcos's troops started killing people. And I hid behind a palm tree, and the fucking palm tree started shattering. <laughs> and I'm like, maybe I ought to crawl in a little deeper <laughs> at the base of the roots of this palm tree. <laughs> but the next day, Reagan told him to go. He let him fall. And we didn't know it then, but we know now that that was the beginning of the end of the Cold War, that America let its dictator fall. Mm-hmm. Because of people power revolution. Three years later, the same thing happened in Central and Eastern Europe. But that was the beginning of the end of the Cold War. So I got to give a uh, quick shout out to actually to the sponsor of our show. God bless you. Little advertisement uh, for uh, Bub's Naturals, health food company. They make some uh, protein that's out I'm here. I'm a kid, Jack. I mean, I'm 29. But that was my first look at the big world. Yeah, yeah. So I get back uh, from a six-month tour. And uh, now I'm in the Washington Bureau, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and then Iran-Contra hits. <laughs> So for those of you in our listening audience who uh, don't remember Iran Contra, he, he, here's what happened. Well, you're, no, you're, you're interrupting the format. That's okay. Go, no, no, go no, for it. It's your no, show. I, I, no, 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 no. Let it happen, let I, it happen naturally. I, no, <laughs> I appreciate this too because a lot of times we talk about things that I'm not familiar with. So I think that for people who, No, go, go into yeah, it naturally. Absolutely, it's all please. <laughs> What's the leading question? The leading question is, what was Iran-Contra? That's what I was going to tell you. <laughs> Great minds. Great minds think alike. So, this was the biggest fuck-up of the American intelligence community since the CIA was created in 1947. The fuck-up was that the President of the United States, Ronald Wilson Reagan, wanted two things. He wanted to support the anti-communist guerrillas, the Contras. Contras, in Central America, who were fighting uh, to overthrow the Sandinista government of Nicaragua. He also wanted to free American hostages who were being held by a Hezbollah unit. Hezbollah means party of God. 
Iranian-backed terrorist motherfuckers, if I can say that word. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, in Lebanon. The first hostage they had taken was the CIA station chief in Beirut, William Buckley, who died under torture. Uh, in 1986, they were holding six Americans under extreme duress, including the Associated Press Bureau Chief, Lebanon Terry Anderson. Um, so Reagan, on a daily basis, importuned the Director of Central Intelligence, William J. Casey, about whom more later. Can't you do anything to free the hostages? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Casey and a gung-ho Marine Lieutenant Colonel on the National Security Council staff named Oliver North came up with what North called a good idea. A neat idea, sorry. His exact words. It was a neat idea. Creative thinking. We're going to sell American weapons to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. The Iranians were then fighting the Iraqis in a brutal, vicious war in which at least two million people died. We're going to sell these weapons to the Iranians who are backing Hezbollah, who are holding the hostages. We will then overcharge them sixfold we will skim the profits and use the money to fund the Contras in Central America despite the fact that Congress has banned American financial support for the Contras 
Good idea. Jack, you know a little bit about covert operations, right? A little. What is the worst thing that you could do when you have one covert operation over here and another covert operation over there? What 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 is the most fucked up, stupid thing that you could do? Oh, I know. Well, when you cross the streams. When you let them talk, yeah. Yeah, you're compromi- you're violating compartmentalization <laughs> and compromising both of them. When you cross the wires. <laughs> yeah. No more calls we have a winner. And so yeah, I've heard the I've heard some of the old war stories about the quote unquote Iran program at CIA during that time frame and weird things that started happening. <laughs> Well, the upshot. Was that the United States sold weapons to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in the hope uh, that this would induce them to free the Contras. They overcharged them. them. They took the money and used it to fund the Contras, and then the whole thing fell apart. Um, the revelation that Ronald Reagan, the President of the United States, had paid ransom for hostages and skimmed the profits um, uh, in violation of law to fund the Contras in Central America um, and that the CIA had facilitated this And the whole thing came unraveled. It was Eugene Hassenfoss, right? When he was shot out of the sky. There was a cargo kicker named Hassenfoss uh, who was, uh, you know, kicking cargo down down to the Contras. The plane got shot down. He was like, duh. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm just... Uh, I'm here because I, I work for the CIA. <laughs> and the story was he was supposed to be sterile and not have anything on him. I'm going to try and make a long story sure. short here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most fucked up operation <laughs> in the history of American intelligence. And and there's some pretty fucked up it ones almost in brought, Well, you know, we'll get to that. <laughs> but it almost brought down the Reagan administration. Mm. Because the president of the United States was caught lying on national television because he got up and said, who, me? Yeah. And it was his, his up. And the whole concept of plausible deniability is that when the CIA does things in the name of the president of the United States, we will create a plausible deniability so that his fingerprints right. are not on the op. Okay. After the revelations uh, of the church committee, the idea of plausible deniability we thought had been defeated and among the reforms that were created in the 70s where there would be oversight committees in Congress um, to keep an eye on the CIA, and that there would be a system 
where the President of the United States would sign a finding. It's called a finding because the President has to say, I find that this covert operation is essential to the national security of the United States. So yeah, there was a finding for for the whole op, but they backdated the fucking finding, didn't they? <laughs> After they got caught doing it. So here's here's Ronald Reagan. Reagan's stance toward the CIA, and this is important, and it, it becomes important for the post-Cold War world, is that Reagan went to the CIA and gave a speech and said, you, you, are the trip wire of democracy. We rely on you, the CIA, to be the pointed spear of American foreign policy. He didn't do all this sort of JFK thing about Oh, all your successes are secret and your failures are broadcasting. No. That was that was over. He said, You're it. You're the point of the end of the spear. But he fucked the CIA. And the head of the CIA, William Casey, was his partner in this. By getting them by inference, not by any finding, formal finding, to do something that was so illegal and so contrary to American foreign policy that almost it could have brought him down. We interviewed uh, Danny Colson, an FBI agent who did the investigation into Iran-Contra, and you said to Ali and all of them they got off on a technicality. No one went to jail. Ali got arrested but didn't go to jail. No one went, sorry. No one went to jail. Bush, the elder, pardoned everybody. Secord, Poindexter. Everybody, no, everybody skated. Bush part. George. Dewey Clark was in the middle of that too, wasn't he? I'm going to get, you know, <laughs> it's a perfect segue. George H.W. Bush, the 41st president of the United States, who was Reagan's vice president, pardoned everybody, including the Secretary of Defense, <laughs> Casper Weinberger, um, who were under indictment for violating the laws of the United States in the SOP. Okay. And... All of this falls under um, the edict of President Richard M. Nixon, who famously said, if it's secret, it's legal. Right. It's the, the notion that if the White House, CIA, if and it's Department secret, of Justice it's legal. are all on the same sheet of music and it remains off of the newspapers, then it's lawful. And Nixon also said, if the president does it, that means it is not illegal. Do you think that notion still exists, that there's a thought that 
if the order comes from the White House, it's lawful? That idea that if the president does it, it is not illegal, is what is sustaining today as we speak the idea that President Donald Trump could stay out of jail. It's like, I am the king. I declassified these documents I am the king. in my mind. Yeah. I'm a king. My word is law. Where this gets into the question of the CIA is important, and this should be the launching point for, you know, what we really want to talk okay. about tonight. Um, in the popular imagination of what the CIA is and what it does, is the idea which was instilled during the church committee mm -hmm. times when it was revealed that there were assassination plots against Fidel Castro, mm -hmm. among others, that there were coups uh, in countries including Iran, that the CIA was a rogue elephant. That was the statement of the head of the church committee, Senator Frank Church. The CIA is a rogue elephant trampling people and nations. Bullshit. They're executing the orders of the executive branch. When the CIA tramples peoples and nations, which it has done, it is because of the rogue... It's not a rogue elephant. It's the rogue mahout. The elephant driver. And that mahout is the president of the United States. Tim, take us back 1947, what happens? Okay. Um, in 1947, the United States is a colossus bestriding the world. Unexpectedly, after 45. No. Uh, World War Two ended in 1945. The war in Europe uh, could not have been won without the Soviet Union. The Soviets lost 27 million dead. Like two and a half generations. Two, 27 million dead in the war against Hitler. The American dead in World War II were, I think, 330,000. Yeah, somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Berlin, 1945. Three OSS officers, the OSS was the Civilian Intelligence Organization. 
the Office of Strategic Services for folks out there. All right. Are in Berlin. Uh, Alan Dulles, the future head of the CIA. Richard Helms, the future head of the CIA. And a guy named Tom Polgar, who was the last station chief, Saigon. He was 23, a Hungarian. And in the wreckage of Berlin, days after Hitler killed himself in May 1945, they're looking east to the Soviets. They don't look, they don't really look in a clinical way. They're looking at a gigantic force that is moving west. Our allies, the Nazis, could not have been defeated without Stalin and the Soviet, the Red Army. They want to keep moving. They want to keep moving west. They want Europe. They're taking everything that, that they can take out of Eastern Germany and moving it. The intelligence uh, assets, people, information, files that the OSS had gathered were, I'm not going to say deep six, but Harry Truman had just become president of the United States upon the death of FDR. Harry Truman was, you know, a senator from Missouri. Not a cloak and dagger guy. He hadn't been read into anything. Mm -hmm. He didn't know that there was a bomb. He knew nothing. And when he looked at the idea of American intelligence, secret missions, secret operations, sabotage, eh, support for underground operations, he looked at it and he said, I do not want an American Gestapo. Mm -hmm. And Bill Donovan went and pitched his idea, right, to Truman, who shot it down quite easily. Truman's, Truman uh, disestablished the OSS in uh, September 1945. The people of the OSS ran a, kind of an underground operation uh, to keep it it alive, to keep the idea of American intelligence alive. Um, when the CIA was created out of the fragments and ashes of the OSS <clears throat> in September of 1947, 
75 years ago, as we speak, um, the idea was that American intelligence uh, before World War II had been fragmented. And its fragmentation among the Army and the Navy, there wasn't an Air Force, there wasn't an intelligence service. Uh, allowed Pearl Harbor to happen. There were, there were pearls, like that think of a pearl necklace. Okay, a broken pearl necklace. There were pearls that had been scattered around, and nobody could string them together. And that's why Pearl Harbor happened. And the idea of the CIA in the beginning was to prevent the next Pearl Harbor. And the idea was to gather and analyze intelligence. Not to fight the Cold War. That came later. We spoke about earlier the idea of coordinating intelligence. Nobody in their right mind could argue against an administrative function like finding that. out what's going on right. in the world. Right. Right. I'm a newspaper reporter. I like that. Okay. Finding out what's going on in the world, analyzing it and reporting it to the president. But very quickly, the very quickly. idea became the notion of rolling Russia back to its previous borders, which has some relevance to our current situation. Yeah, it happened. It started out in a political way, and then it got into a paramilitary way. Right. So <coughs> nobody understood anything that was going on in Russia, in the Soviet Union. It was a closed world. There was one guy, one guy, who could explain to Harry Truman, the president of the United States, what is going, what does Stalin want? Is he going to go further? Is, does he want to take Western Europe? Uh, is he our enemy now? Nobody knew that. Right. Nobody could understand understand that there was one guy and his name was George Kennan George Kennan was the, uh, the charge the guy in charge of the American embassy in Moscow in 1946 uh He'd spent many years in the Soviet Union. And Kennan was asked by the White House, the fuck is going on? What does Stalin want? Are they our enemy now? After being our ally in the war? And Kennan reported back, that the Soviets, the Russians, um, lived in a world that was founded on, on an architecture of lies. 
and that their military and their foreign policy and that their intelligence services were going to mystify, mislead, and surprise America. Kennan, after serving as you know, the charge in Moscow, came back to the United States and wrote a, a report uh, which said, in its essence, um, that the Soviets wanted to deceive the Americans about their purposes um, and to take as much of Europe as they can. Cannon became the first uh, person who ran the policy planning uh, division, newly created the State Department, and he reported to the new Secretary of State, General George C. Marshall, who was, I think, the greatest general who has ever served in the United States. Talk to us about what started going on in Italy and Greece in those early years. So Cannon supported the idea that not only should there be a CIA, but that the CIA should have a clandestine operations division uh -huh. to, in his words, fight fire with fire. <laughs> We weren't good at this, the Americans. We didn't do this. Espionage, sabotage, covert operations, that, that wasn't our thing. But Kennan, the diplomat, told George Marshall, Secretary of State, and the Secretary of Defense, Jim Forrestal, that the, C the newly created CIA, which was created as an analytical operation, needed to become a paramilitary operation to not only fight fire with fire, but to run covert operations against the Soviets. Kennedy is famous as a diplomat. He denied this to the end of his days. He did not. He died. I wrote his is obituary. This, is this the same Kennedy that wrote in uh, Foreign Affairs about containment. That guy. I wrote his obituary for the New York Times in uh, 2005. He died at the age of 101. Wow. He denied to the end of his days that he had. Anything to do <laughs> with the foundation of the covert operations of the CIA. But he did. Because he understood the Russians. He had lived more of his life in Russia than in the, the United States. He understood what they were. And what it took to fight them. To understand that you are up against 
an empire of lies. And so what did we start to do to subvert communism in Europe? <laughs> the first stop So it's 1948. War-torn Europe. The Italians are uh, having an election. So the Italians were on the side of the Nazis, remember, during the war. And Mussolini was overthrown and hung by his heels but there was still a, a strong fascist element in Italy uh, and the communists uh, were the anti-fascists mm -hmm. so great, there's, a, there's a huge draw. a great problem of post-world <laughs> war Europe is that the communists were the anti-fascists. The uh, Stalin's armies, the Red Army, killed a hundred times more fascists than the Americans did. So the challenge for the Americans, there was an election, a free election coming up in previously fascist Italy. The anti-fascists were the communists. So how could you support the Christian Democrats? That was the literal name of the party, the Christian Democrats. I mean, they were around for a long time. It was the people allied with the Pope. Aldo Moro was a Christian Democrat, wasn't he? That's a long story. Right. <laughs> so there's going to be a, an election. Cannon is now sort of conceiving the covert operations of the CIA. And it's like, how are we going to win this election? Long story short, in its first covert operation of any <laughs> consequence, the CIA plunges money and people into the Italian election of 1948. Suitcases of cash are exchanged in five-star hotels to the Christian Democrats, to priests. Um, to create um, a legitimate opposition to uh, the socialists. It was a close-run election. But that's the first CIA operation that changes the course of history. And they're like, whoa, we can do this. We can do this. We can change the course the of history. It just takes suitcases full of cash and alliances with uh, anti-communists. And they sort of repeated that process in Greece, right? Well, like, oh, now what can we do? Um, but the problem was that the challenges in Europe 
and in Asia were not elections. They were acts of war. The OSS was the World War II civilian operation uh, that was the intelligence service that anticipated the CIA and, and OSS veterans were replete in the ranks of the CIA. When the CIA was formed in 1947, it was 200 people. Most of them were OSS. Um, what the OSS had done during World War II that was striking was to parachute Jedberg teams and yeah. other elements behind enemy lines. Behind enemy lines for sabotage um, and this was a hope more than um, a realized idea to gather intelligence but mostly for sabotage. Mm -hmm. The tragic flaw of the early CIA um, was to think that they could do what the OSS had done. In Hungary, Albania, Ukraine, Poland, Russia, Poland. Korea. And they fed bodies into the wood chipper. All of this is in legacy of ashes. The idea... We even tried it in the Vietnam conflict early on. This is 1949 to 1954. The OSS veterans believed that they could roll back the communist conspiracy, the worldwide communist conspiracy, by parachuting not Americans, but recruited foreign agents behind enemy lines to set up intelligence networks. Like they had done in occupied France. Why didn't they work this time, though? Because the Soviets, uh, from 1949 onward, uh, through um, the British representative to the CIA, Kim Philby, mm. <laughs> had completely penetrated the CIA. The CIA, and indeed the FBI, did not have a sophisticated counterintelligence which we'll get to in a bit network in Korea Korea is a different Europe is one story in Europe the Soviets through Kim Philby and his network had completely penetrated the CIA's operational network so that every op not some of them everyone in Ukraine, in Russia, in Poland, 
the Poland example is explicit. I want to talk to, about about that. Everywhere that the CIA was going to parachute recruited foreign agents over the Iron Curtain to gather intelligence and set up stay-behind units to fight World War III when the Russians' tanks, you know, came over the Fulda Gap in Germany is to start the war. Covert operations without intelligence to support them are suicide missions. You can't just parachute them into a black hole and think they'll establish a resistance network. And that is a lesson that we haven't learned completely. Mm. Talk to me about Frank Wisner. Or Frank, Frank, Frank Wisner. Boy, that's Frank, and he was the he was kind of the uh, mastermind behind the Stay Behind networks in Europe early on. The early CIA. Um, was basically Alan Dulles, who ran the CIA from 1951, sorry, 53 to 61, uh, but who had been a deputy, the number two guy. Uh, Frank Wisner. So Frank Wisner... cut his teeth in American intelligence in the OSS, in Romania. He had developed a net of pro-American uh, forces. The net was betrayed. He saw them shipped off in trains to their death by the Russians. Uh, he became the genius of covert operations at the CIA um, from its earliest days uh, until the late 50s. So, let's say 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Wizard was mentally ill. Mm -hmm. Um, his mental illness resulted in his suicide at his own hand in 1965. Um, his mania uh, manifested itself by plunging recruited foreign agents on suicide missions um, throughout Europe and Asia. Um, he was part of the early cadre of CIA. 
um, who believed that they could run the Cold War in the ways that the OSS had run the war in Europe through parachute missions uh, and through um, penetrations of foreign governments. The disaster of the American experience in Vietnam is predicated on his CIA missions, um, which were which were delusions. Um, the idea that we can gather intelligence through covert action, rather than develop covert action through intelligence. Out of curiosity, because we talked about Philby and and the to- the penetration of the CIA. In in your estimation, uh, knowing you know you've researched this way more than either of us have, uh, would any of those operations of of sending these teams in in an OSS model would they would they have would there have been the chance of them being more successful? Could they have worked? Because we, we talk about, you also talk about Vietnam, and we also know that, like, Mac B. Sog was thoroughly penetrated by communist Vietnamese at the, w- embassy, w- yeah. at the embassy. Without those penetrations, could those types of, if America would have been, if we would have been more CIA aware, if we would have been <laughs> more... underestimated the enemy. Right. Well, and, and also, yeah, that's great. Not as underestimate the enemy. Could those operations have worked in the way they envisioned them? Counterintelligence is the business of catching spies who are penetrating your ops and protecting your ops against those spies. The framework of American counterintelligence uh, depended for the first 25 years of the Cold War. So from 1947 until 1972 on a gentleman named James Jesus Angleton. Jim Angleton uh, had uh, been uh, OSS London amazing guy a poetry major at Yale his English professor at Yale recruited him into the OSS in London James Jesus Angleton befriended a gentleman in British intelligence named Kim Philby. They became friends. Kim Philby was assigned to be the British intelligence representative uh, in Washington 
1949. Jim Ackleton, um, having run the successful Italian op that we discussed to to control the Italian election uh, in 1948, was the nascent... Uh, chief of counterintelligence. Uh, it's a position he formerly held um, for 25 years. So here's, an, here's a thing. The victors in World War II floated out in their victory on a sea of alcohol. And what we would now probably call post-traumatic stress, but was not so readily acknowledged in those days. The friendship of Ankleton and Philby was uh, sealed with the warm caress of whiskey and the cold kiss of martinis. They discussed everything. Philby was a Soviet agent. Angleton was the guy in the American intelligence establishment who was charged with preventing Soviet penetrations right. of the American intelligence establishment. Angleton told Philby everything, which is why every paramilitary operation launched by the CIA in Europe from 1949 until 1954, they were suicide missions. Angleton, oh, Philby, by the way, was recalled. His, his, uh, betrayal was not revealed for many years later. He died a lonely alcoholic dickhead in Moscow uh, in the 70s. Angleton destroyed American counterintelligence mm -hmm. for years on end because he became, he would never admit that Philby had betrayed him, but he had a source named Anatoly Golitsyn, who convinced him in his, in, in Angleton's alcoholism, convinced him that he had the source. Golitsyn convinced him that every Soviet who came to the United States and said, I want to work for you, was a double. Mm -hmm. it, that it, destroyed American counterintelligence. It, it's funny because, have you ever, have you met Jim Olson? Mm -hmm. Have you ever had the opportunity to talk to him about Angleton? We had Jim Olson on the show. And, and how Angleton, even the technical operations like the Berlin Tunnel operation, Angleton was trying to tell Jim Olson 
not, oh, those are just dangles. They're just like pretending to send this this cable traffic back and forth. But the, yeah, but that paranoia that you said that because the 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 this Russian asset like this this source instilled in him, yeah. You know, it, it was that case of never meet your heroes because Jim right. really looked up to Angleton. And then when he actually, like, when he like, started oh working God. for him and, and he's like, everything is a Russian plot. And it's like, no, like, this guy's coming in and telling us, no, it's a Russian plot. And it's like, yeah. How destructive the that was. Yeah. Of yeah. The the American counterintelligence was destroyed by Angleton. Because he believed that every Soviet who came to the United States was was a dangle, was a deception. American counterintelligence to this day, and we'll get into this later, is fucked. Because we don't know what we don't know right. about how to detect... Very sophisticated operation. Have a little refill there, please. Very sophisticated operations that are intended. Thank you, sir. To deceive, mystify, and mislead us. It's not an American skill. Well, and we we. I mean, as much as people think that. The CIA has all this hidden stuff, and they do. I'm not saying that our government doesn't hide stuff, but we are, by comparison of other countries, a trans, a, a fairly transparent. We're country. Americans. Yeah, babes we, in the woods. We, we, we're, okay. we <laughs> we're Americans, not... dude. We're talking about intelligence, right? Right. The Chinese have been at this. Since Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War, the, and the 26 Chinese, centuries ago. The Chinese crush us at this. The British have been at this since Queen Elizabeth I. Yeah. Okay? 500-something years ago. The Russians have been at this since Peter the Great, 300-odd years ago. We got into this... 47. After World War II. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. We we are... We walk in baby shoes. Yeah. Okay. We don't know. We don't know the history of intelligence. When you go to the farm, the CIA's training unit, they don't teach you about the history of intelligence. We're going to get this because we're going to talk about the AQ Khan network. But if if you go to the farm, they're not going to teach you about, like, what we're talking about. The history of intelligence is the history of warfare. Mm -hmm. Sun Tzu tells us in The Art of War, all warfare is based on deception. Deception is the art of intelligence. Every discussion about how the Americans make war and how the Americans conduct intelligence operations should proceed from that. 
all warfare is based on deception. And that means not only do you have the art of deceiving your enemies, but how you understand how you might be deceived. Right. This is the essence. And Americans die in war because we don't get that. Speaking of this, Tim, uh, another subject I wanted to ask you about, post-World War II construct, your book mentions it. Uh, so does uh, Danny Orbach's book, Fugitives, does a really good job on talking about this as well. There's this sort of, I, I think, um, almost fetishization of the Nazis and you know their ruthless efficiency, if you will. But I was wondering if you could talk to us about the efficacy of the Gehlen Network. The Gehlen Network? Uh-huh. What was it, first of all? And, well, and here, here we go. Here we go into the art of deception. In post-World War One Germany, the Americans, realizing that the Soviets were suddenly not our friends, looked to Germans um, who had fought the Soviets, who were Nazis, to develop uh, a strategy. Reinhard Galen um, was a Nazi. The Americans, we, thought we could develop in him as an anti-Soviet uh, force. Uh, he ran intelligence into the Soviet Union for the Third Reich. Correct. His network was completely penetrated by the Soviets. Um, so we signed up a guy, a Nazi, who, come to find out, to our sorrow, was penetrated by the Soviets to be our guy who was going to spy on the Soviets. One of the Americans who was in the OSS, who was in Berlin in 1945, was a gentleman who I came to know quite well, named Richard Helms, who was the, the director of central intelligence um, from 1965 to 1973. So Richard Helms um, had been a reporter, a newspaper reporter, for United Press in 1936, and he scored an interview with Hitler. <laughs> he was 23 years old. <laughs> And he's like, this is a scoop, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a scoop. But it, it convinced him that there was more to life than, than being a newspaper reporter. So Helms... Uh, was in Germany. Um, 
he w was a charter member of CIA, having served OSS. In, in, uh, and uh, he was trying to gather intelligence, right? There were all these displaced persons trying to sell their There, they were grifters. I mean, they were intelligence displaced grifters. Displaced persons. Okay, Russians. In Europeans. Germans. Central Europeans. And the Americans were running, you know, Germany. We occupied Germany. Who were selling their services. Um, Helms called these people paper hangers. Yeah. They were, they were trying to deceive the Americans for money. Like, Quick I know about right. X. Right. Give me $500 and I will tell you about Y. Right? Helms understood deception. Helms was the guy who became the premier advocate for espionage and counterintelligence over covert operations at CIA. And that's why Helms, when he was director, he spent his entire life at CIA until Richard fucking Nixon fired him for refusing to support the Watergate cover-up. Like a month before his 60th. Exactly. Right. Helms was the guy. I knew him very well. I interviewed him every chance I got. Who said intelligence is espionage. It's not covert action. And intelligence is counterintelligence. Never go to sleep without thinking about where the spy is. What do you, how do you feel about some of these guys personally, having met many of them? I, I mean, in so many ways, a lot of these guys are genuine American heroes who helped us you know, defeat Nazi Germany. The CIA was a central factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Let's not right. say that. They, they helped. And they were incredibly patriotic guys who would, you know, were willing to do, you know, pretty much whatever needed to be done, right? But at the same time, bumbled into things. They made mistakes, especially in those early years, the first few decades. Okay, so let's talk about the history of the CIA. Legacy of Ashes. The history of the CIA. National Book Award winner, Indeed. I might add. There are our eras, the, let's carve them into 25 years. CIA is founded in 1947. The purpose is to prevent the next Pearl Harbor. This quickly devolves into fighting the Cold War. 25 years pass and comes Watergate. And Watergate is a shorthand for the discovery that the government of the United States 
the White House is a corrupt force that is a, that has fucked with American democracy. The Nixon White House, the corruption of the Nixon White House, the discovery that the President of the United States was using the CIA, never mind the FBI, to spy on Americans, comes out at the end of 1974. This creates the Senate investigation, the Church Committee. The skeletons come tumbling out. And the skeletons are that the CIA has not only you know, run coups against uh, legitimate governments in Guatemala and Iran, but has conspired to assassinate Fidel Castro, among other foreign leaders, Patrice Lumumba, the first democratically selected leader of the Congo. Who gets hung for these? CIA. Yes. What did the church committee fail to say? That they're enacting the president's will. They're taking their marching orders from the president. The whole concept of plausible deniability. The president doesn't go down for anyone. Is a lie. You think a bunch of CIA officers sat around at the Vienna Inn and went rogue, you know, yeah. <laughs> and had a couple of martinis and said, "Hey, I have a good idea. Let's kill Fidel Castro." You guys know the Congo? Yeah, yeah. Ever it's been? Over, no, been? no, <laughs> no. That's not what happened. It was John F. Kennedy and his brother Bobby who wanted Fidel dead. The church committee never got to that. It was too hard. But, as a consequence, a, a, a couple of reforms got created. One, there are congressional oversight committees that get to hear about the takeoffs and the crashes of covert action. Two, the president authorizing covert action has to sign what's called a finding, which says, I find that this covert operation is essential to the national security of the United States. No more plausible deniability. Well, gentlemen, if you're running a covert secret intelligence service in an open democratic society, those are guardrails mm -hmm. that are important. Nevertheless, presidents will tell the CIA to do terrible things without deniability.
and then wash their hands when it blows up. When we talk about intelligence failures, and we kind of need to move into the 21st century here because we've, we've been talking about the history of the 20th century CIA. I'll try to move you forward a little bit okay. here. The idea that the president, the idea that the CIA is a freestanding organization that does shit because it thinks it's cool to do is bullshit. The CIA is the president's secret army. It does what the president tells it to do. And when things go wrong, as they always do, because the thing that really needs to be engraved on the wall of the CIA, on the wall of the CIA is engraved from the Gospel of John, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There needs to be engraved next to that shit happens. <laughs> or Murphy's Law, if you will. Whatever yeah. can go wrong will go wrong. And when it goes wrong, because the president wants the CIA to do X, Y, and Z, the president is going to hang the CIA for doing it. Before we move into contemporary times, uh, there was an interesting contemporary parallel, I thought, in your book as far as Richard Nixon and his war against the so-called liberal CIA cabal or deep state. I was wondering if you could tell us about that and, and what it led to. Hmm. Uh, so I wrote a whole book about Richard Nixon. Nixon hated <laughs> the CIA for a number of reasons, a few of which were logical, but the fundamental reason that the President of the United States, Richard Nixon, hated the CIA was that they were con he was convinced that the CIA had fucked him about the plans for the Bay of Pigs. What was Nixon's position when Bay of Pigs happened? Under Kennedy? Nixon uh, believed uh, that uh, the CIA hated him and concealed from him uh, uh, their future plans so that when he debated John Kennedy uh, in the crucial first televised pres presidential debates that he didn't know what was going on. Was that true to your knowledge? No. Um, because the plans were not, had not been germinated. Okay. Yeah. Nixon was a bit of a paranoid guy, wasn't it? 
Nixon saw enemies everywhere. He believed that the CIA was a bunch of liberal academic Georgetown <laughs> Democrats. Part of an establishment that he wasn't a part of. Nixon said, and I can tell you this because I've listened to the tapes for the book I wrote by Nixon. What the hell is the CIA doing out there? They got 40,000 people reading newspapers. <laughs> what do those clowns do out there? He thought that they were part of a liberal establishment that was subverting him. Nevertheless, Nixon called Richard Helms, the head of the CIA, into the Oval Office in 1970. He had a problem. The problem <laughs> was that Salvador Allende, a socialist politician whom the CIA had worked to defeat in the previous election in Chile in 1964, had won an election in Chile. Nixon believed that Salvador Allende was a fucking communist who was going to, you know, uh, be the lead domino that was going to set off a, a series of communist uh, rebellions that would undermine the United States. So. Nixon calls Helms in the Olaf's. Allende has won the election, but it has to be certified by the Congress. Right? Just like us. Like the Congress has to accept the votes. Popular vote and then certify it. And he tells Richard Helms, I want you to reverse the election in Chile. <laughs> it has happened. I will, you know, here's $10,000. I give you the bayonet. Fuck communism in Chile. What are you going to do with that? The president has told you to reverse the results of an election. Right. In a democratic society. And Helms saluted smartly. And set out to do that. It didn't work until it did work three years later. The CIA supported a military coup in Chile. And this wasn't Nixon so much as it was Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State, driving this. Running. It's like Salvador Allende wins and American... 
And this is all against the backdrop of Sistema Condor, which is like South America's Gladio, right? The result was uh, Augusto Pinochet, uh-huh. General Pichet, ran Chile for the next 17 years and took everybody who was opposed to him uh, into a state of fear and took his actual political opponents into helicopters and dropped them into the sea and murdered them. The CIA sometimes to its regret is the instrument of American foreign policy. The CIA, people didn't sit around and say, let's kill Fidel Castro. Let's overthrow the Shah. Right. Okay. Throw a dart Let, on the map and see who we overthrow you know, next. Let's, or, or, let's change the course of history because we're the CIA and we're... And American presidents are rather unpatient. Presidents tell the CIA <laughs> to do what they do. And then when things get fucked up, presidents deny it. And that is the history of the CIA up until the end of the Cold War. There's a, a lot more in your book that we're not going to have time to get to. There's MK Ultra. there's Bay of Pigs, there's Vietnam. The wall comes down much more... Uh, before we get into into contemporary times, uh, one last question about the book. I want to ask you about the CIA's reaction to the book. The review that was written, they describe your book as a 600-page op-ed piece masquerading as history. Uh, they stopped just short of calling you a real son of a bitch. <laughs> what do you make of all that? What do you think I know it? the guy who wrote that. Yeah? Um... So he wanted to write the official history of the CIA. And you wrote the unofficial one. I did. Uh, Nick, good guy, um, had been commissioned to write an official authorized... A classified history? No! Oh, really? An official authorized history. Okay. And so this preempted that. And that book was never written. Never was. That's a shame, though, isn't it? I would love to read that book. Yeah, so would the I. The problem is... Um, oh, gosh. This is a long discussion. Um <laughs> When you go to the CIA as a reporter, um, you need to come armed with a an, an understanding of the right questions to ask. And I, now I'm talking about interviewing individual CIA officers and veterans, analysts, and I have interviewed 300-something people like this. When you go to the CIA and say, 
you need to declassify your own history. Because I, Tim, am trying to write an authoritative history of what you have done. And I know about the failures. They are public. I need to know the successes. Yeah. The general response is, fuck you. You don't say. The general response when you go to the CIA and you say, will you please declassify things? Fuck you is probably a little extreme. It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> Fornicate would, you. <laughs> would, 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 would be a, a more generous description. Nevertheless, as a reporter who uh, approaches CIA officers, if you come to them with an understanding, this is not going to the CIA's Office of Public Affairs. This is going to individual people. If you go to them with a general understanding of who they are and what they have done, um, they understand you as a reporter, okay? What they do, cultivating sources, is what I'm doing. There's a gigantic Venn diagram <laughs> right. between what intelligence officers do and what reporters do. In more ways than one sometimes. <laughs> it's enormous. <laughs> we get to, like, parachute into Khartoum or Jalalabad, you know, and say, take me to your leader. And they're like, cool, okay. And just for all of our viewers out here, like, you want to pay attention to Tim in the future because you you have all the deets on the AQCon network and how and how it was taken down. I do. And it was a big deal, right? Like they Huge. were not they were not that far from having nuclear capabilities. They had them. They had them. And this gentleman may have even been on the team house in the past, although he didn't reveal any details to us about exactly how the that was done. Uh, hey, guys. Hey, thank you, everybody. Hey, please join our Patreon. Um, the link is down below. You get a ton of bonus episodes, um, and you support our drinking habit. Uh, and also, <laughs> this nice space. This nice space from you, you guys. guys see right now is because of hey, our sure. patrons. And... and um, and also, please check out uh, Tim's book, Legacy Ashes, um, uh, win winner of the National Book Award. Uh, Tim's also a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He's got a ton of books. He's got some hot books coming out. He's got the scoop on... Uh, some stuff. On some stuff. I mean, honestly, not only uh, not only on the... the, uh, the uh, 
Islamic bomb nuclear capability that was rolled up, but also uh, he's he's got a scoop. Can I can I can I tell the scoop about the the what now? The can I tell the scoop? any any not, any, not any, scoop. any little uh, any little scoops you, you want to give tease us a out teaser? There? You want to give us a teaser of um, the scoop? The a teaser? Will you have a teaser about a raid, a very famous raid? And you have information that nobody else has. You don't have to tell us what it is. We- when that book comes out, we'll definitely have you on the show again, Tim. Yeah. I- I'm, uh, I'm as excited as anyone to read about it. Um, thank you, everyone who joined us tonight. Thank you so much, Tim, for uh, coming out here. I know you, know, you came in from D.C. super tired. Um, this has been awesome. I hope we can do it again. And next Friday, we're going to have um, John Fox. We're going to be talking. Uh, to no way. YPG <laughs> volunteers in Syria. That's next episode. He'll be here in studio, I believe. Uh, so we'll see you guys next week. You guys got anything before we roll out? No, All thank good? you, everybody. Thank you, Tim. We deeply thank appreciate you. it, man. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.